Welcome back to another episode of the CSK8 podcast. My name is Jared O'Leary. In this week's episode, I'm interviewing Justin Kennedy. In our discussion, we talk about project-based learning and computer science, encouraging debugging and working through failure, both as students and teachers, considerations for integrating CS, some of the lessons that Justin learned working on NIMSI's CS-aligned curriculum and professional development, and many more topics. As always, you can find the show notes by clicking on the link in the description that is found in the app you are listening to this on, or by visiting jaredoleary.com, where there's nothing for sale or anything like that. With all that being said, we're now going to begin with Justin introducing himself. My name is Justin Kennedy, and I'm the Senior Program Design Manager of Computer Science for NIMSI, which is National Math and Science Initiative. I look at uh, kindergarten through 12th grade computer science teacher professional development and student curriculum materials for the teachers that we support. Before that, I worked with You Teach Computer Science and did their AP Computer Science Principles curriculum development and teacher professional development. I am a grad student currently working on my doctorate in business administration, which there's a long story there, but not enough time to get into. And I have two daughters. I hope they will venture into STEM in some way. And I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Can you tell me the story of how you got into CS education? Yes. So I majored in mathematics in college and did a minor in computer science just because the faculty there said they paired well. And I said, okay, that's fine. And then uh, didn't really use the computer science part until about five or six years ago when Dr. Jeff Gray at the University of Alabama wrote a grant for CS for Alabama, in which the aim of the grant was to increase the amount of computer science teachers in Alabama by approximately 50 teachers. And so I was brought in on phase two of the grant and then we were being instructed or taught how to teach AP computer science principles but it was before the AP computer science principles exam that's where I got my start began teaching computer science principles at Homewood High School for a couple years and then ended up going to another school in Birmingham a private school to do their fifth grade through 12th grade computer science program and now I'm where I am and what's something that you believed when you first began working in education that you no longer believe? I was one of these overachievers all through high school and all through college. And I believed that my calling was to get the best and brightest and make them better and brighter. And so I thought, you know, value is in the AP classes and making sure, you know, we're doing everything we can to make these kids as smart as we can. I wish I could like slap my older self. That is not the way this should work. I full full 180 on equity and access for, I mean, computer science, but education in general. I think that's the biggest thing that I do not believe anymore that, you know, every student has value now and every student should be pushed as hard as they can be and supported at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of funny how perceptions of what teaching or education is going to be like before you go into it and you actually get in the classroom right. it's like oh <laughs> exactly yeah I mean and it's it's more like you almost develop this sort of empathy for your students and it's like you know these ones that have been successful in the past they they have their ways to do it but then you know you see the student that you know comes to school because they don't have food at home right and the fact that they're still there. They're still, you know, giving it everything they can just to try to get out of the life that they're in is just inspirational. So if someone were to kind of walk into what you would consider to be an ideal CS classroom, what would they see in here? Like, what are some of the engaging learning experiences that would be going on? 
This is another thing that changed for me, I would say, from when I began teaching to where I am now and how I look at, at learning. I think it, it was definitely my my own insecurities about my classroom. And, you know, I almost not to, to the militant approach, but like very close. Like, you know, we we need to work and drill and make sure this stuff gets done. But like I said, I think that was my own insecurities coming out of like, I, I need control. I think now, you know, the least amount of control you really can have and, and having the students engaged and excited, that's what I feel like an ideal classroom looks like. And, you know, you, you have people embrace their vulnerability and stepping out and wanting to fail just so they know that they're learning. And so that mentality of, of safety, psychological safety or, or learning safety, whatever it would be, that would be the hallmark of my ideal classroom. Yeah, I know I had worked with a lot of teachers who control is like probably their biggest issue, especially (laughs) when it comes to like facilitating project based learning and whatnot is giving up that control and just allowing kids to explore. And especially if you go into inquiry based learning, then that's a whole nother level of control that teachers have to get rid of. So speaking of project based learning, I'm wondering, what do you wish more CS educators understood about PBL because I've sat in on a session that you did on project-based learning at CSTA last year. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? What we were just talking about with vulnerability and, and giving up that control, I think it's something that's very different for a lot of teachers to grasp. And I, I think, you know, part of the plight right now is we have a lot of CS teachers that are from other disciplines. And so I say this often, but in CS, we're the only discipline that thinks it's natural or doesn't think it's natural, but we do it where we're yanking someone out of their comfort zone, where they went to school for, what they, mm-hmm. you know, what they know in their content and putting them into something new, brand new at that. And a lot of times we give them a week of professional development and then some online community. And it's like, yeah, you can teach an AP course, but you know, it it sounds absurd in any other AP course that exists. And so I think, you know, there's an element of when you then add on this layer of PBL or any other inquiry-based learning, teachers just have to be super flexible. They have to be willing to, to embrace that failure with their students. And so I think the best way to do that is, you know, building that trust and rapport with your students letting them know that, you know, this is new for you too. Not only the content, but maybe, you know, the project-based learning approach. And what I've seen with teachers and those that are starting project-based learning, it's it's very overwhelming, all sorts of reasons. I think classroom environment's one of them. But then also, I, I think there's an element of the stigma that surrounds project-based learning too, that's like, well, you know, I'm going to give my kids a project and then they're going to do it, but they, you know, it may take too much time. And I think, you know, there's so much progress that's been done with project-based learning. And anyone listening, I would recommend uh, checking out PB PBLworks.org. It is a uh, site put forth by the Buck Institute for Education, um, which it used to be BIE.org, but they rebranded in a way. But they were the, I say, real uh, forerunners in project-based learning. And so I think there's the element of looking at doing project-based learning well and knowing when to step in and help your students and when to let them fail. Uh, and help them understand the difference and why we we set up that environment. I think a lot of teachers, when they first do project-based learning, they also get a lot of backlash from students, especially the higher achieving student. Well, why aren't you teaching us? Why aren't you telling us what to do? Because that's how they've always been been taught. It's always been spoon-fed to them, and they're used to that. And right. so breaking them out of that mold so they can really you know, connect with the content and, and make it deep is, is something that teachers have to be willing to accept. Right. 
Yeah, that depth is something that I strongly value in PBL because like often with problem-based or challenge-based or puzzle-based or activity-based learning, like it's this surface level application of understanding without really much synthesizing or depth in it, Right. at least in the stuff that I have seen. I'm curious, when mm-hmm. you, you talked about the failure and whatnot, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that because at some point, what do we do about kids who are just constantly failing or kids who don't engage in any failure? So like either end of that spectrum, like how do you find that nice balance between failure and success? That's what comes in time. And I think that's where teachers who, you know, do PBL in their classroom or any other similar pedagogy, they don't know how to react to that. They don't know how to engage the student that wants to do everything by themselves and doesn't want any help. Or the student that is trying, but then, you know, is, is just not finding what's going on. And so I would say, one, I've seen a lot of success when teachers enlist other students as the advocates and creating that social dynamic within the classroom that, you know, they can find a friend and they can find someone that will help them and help the teacher and help the student that may be disengaged or may help the student that is not engaging in the level that they would want. I would preface that with the disclaimer that you don't want to do the age old like, oh, yeah, well, the student can just teach everything or let me put all this um, this weight and burden on the student right. um, because I think that's setting up a different thing. I'm wary of that just because then you're kind of robbing that student that you're wanting to enlist as an advocate of their education and their experience by doing that. And so there's a fine line there, but I think a lot of social interaction, social dynamic is is how you set it up. So the last school I taught at was a private school and, and there was a lot of students that were on the overachieving side of the spectrum. And what made the best impact is when they were isolated from peers. It, it was like a their own mental block of saying, oh, okay, I, I can fail. It's okay. And this is how I can fail. And this is how I can fail and not look like I'm a failure. Like, I think a lot of that is the perception and it's within that community. And so like within the community of higher achieving students or or overachieving students, I can say that from being one of like, yeah, I don't want people to know that I fail or didn't do everything perfect the first time. And so I think having that in isolation is best and creating those times in which, you know, students can come back for extra help, but then allowing them to see, you know, that, that it's okay, that your, your program didn't output what you wanted it to on the first go round. I would also say, and and research supports this, that's a more common trend in female students, girls and and women students, as opposed to males because of the mentality of, you know, boys can go and and get hurt and dirty. And I'm referencing the TED talk from the founder of Girls Who Code. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe so. And so about being brave and encouraging women and girl students to be brave and fail and learn from it. I think setting up those opportunities for social interactions and having advocates between students and then also in isolation for those overachieving students. Yeah, and I'll include a link to that TED Talk in the show notes. So I had classes that were in three-week rotations where I'd see them four times minimum a week. And so like every Thursday, we'd have debugging day where it's like you start off like practicing debugging and I would share something that I, I worked on in terms of here's a failure that I had this last week and here's how I like tried to work around that or, and whatnot. But I'm curious, you you mentioned like failing in isolation, which I, I totally understand, but I having sat with other educators, there's often a strong value on working in group settings. And personally, right. I never enjoyed any group projects I've ever worked <laughs> on, like ever. Yeah. But I'm wondering, 
if you have experience with failure in group settings and how that might compare with the failure in isolation? I would say, and I, I would not want to set up this idea that the students should always come and fail in isolation. I think part of that, and this is maybe jumping into the, the psychology of it all or the therapy of it all, is allowing that student to, to learn to fail but then also integrating that back in of learning to fail in front of others. So Jared, I would agree with you. I was one that I, I did not like being in groups because typically if I was in a group, I was going to do all the work. Right. And I think the benefit of, of structuring project-based learning or, or any other cooperative learning is making sure that all parties are accountable within the group. And it's, it's structured in a way that the students own the accountability. So they, I, I've seen it done through a group contract where they, you know, stipulate workload, they stipulate how to contact each other, what happens if someone, you know, drops the ball, what happens when, when they do really well in these groups. And so that group contract can be enforced mutually amongst them all. And I think that's a good way to create that environment. I think, you know, a lot of it is going to be helping students and meeting them where they are. Because at the end of the day, students are not really going to learn unless they feel safe. They can absorb the knowledge and spit it back at you. But I mean, we know that's not learning <laughs> for them to actually like understand what is going on. That's going to be where they're going to have to have that safety. And so I think it, it works in different ways with different students. And that's why going back to like creating that rapport, allowing them to, to really bond and understand where they're coming from and how, you know, different social dynamics within a school can affect that. Uh, different times of the day can affect that. Yeah. You know, I don't like being up in the morning and, and doing things, but in the afternoon, I'm much happier person. And so I think giving those opportunities for learning and, and doing those things in safe settings is probably what I would come back to. Yeah. And the time of day thing, there's a lot of research supporting <laughs> like high school kids in particular should not be going yeah. to school as early as they do. <laughs> right. We shouldn't go to work as early as we do either. <laughs> <laughs> right. You and I both value project-based learning. I'm wondering it's kind of like a two-parter when you would encourage a CS educator to engage in PBL and when you would not recommend PBL. I would say PBL is a great framework. I don't know that I would use it 100% of the time. And I think there's elements of it that are great, but they can kind of be teased out. A lot of uh, PBL uses cooperative learning, which I think it's the Kagan, I forgot, but they've done a lot around uh, cooperative learning and basically setting up these team building, group building activities to, to again, build these this trust. And so that's, I see that as something that should be in every single classroom. Your students should come in and trust each other. They should trust you. I don't see that as a missing element from any classroom. I do think some topics, some content, you know, is easily explained in different ways. The constant struggle, at least what I, I hear from teachers I've seen, is this matter of efficiency. I'm like, Justin, we have to go through all this stuff and how can we allow PBL to do it? And I, I think that's kind of the fun part of designing a curriculum that, that is PBL. It's, it's like balancing the need for efficiency, but then also the need for student understanding. Like mm -hmm. we could go on one end of the spectrum, of like full PBL all the time, and we can get some really, really deep learning going on. But, you know, uh, <laughs> we're, we're probably not going to be covering a lot of other things because mm -hmm. we're so deep and, and we're using that time appropriately. And then, you know, on the other end of doing efficiency, you know, lecture, direct instruction, 
uh, throat memorization, whatever it may be, that's like, you know, we're only hitting surface level, but we can hit a ton of topics because, you know, the easiest way or the fastest way for information to be conveyed is just telling it to someone. And so that's where you're you're having to to balance. And so I would encourage, you know, if it's a teacher that has never done PBL before, find a unit out there, create one, I, I would say find one and try it in your classroom. Um, see how it works in your classroom, see if it works with the topic. I think that's a great opportunity to learn a lot about your own teaching style, about how your students respond to it, and then start looking more from there. I think, you know, rushing in and trying to overhaul your entire classroom and in, in one year is a very lofty goal. Mm-hmm. I do, I really enjoyed, there was a book, I forget the authors, but it was a hacking project-based learning. It's a very short book, but it gives like 10 to 12 steps in there. And this is a very general approach to any classroom, 10 to 12 steps, case studies of, of how it worked. And then almost like a, this is what you can do today to do PBL stuff, like quick things. And then this is what you could do next year. And I can send you that link, Jared, because I, I think that's a wonderful book. And for any teacher that wants to jump into to PBL, that would be a great way to do it. Yeah, that, the, that advice definitely pairs nicely. I did a an interview with John Stapleton a while back, and he was talking mm-hmm. about how he was taught constructivist practices and pedagogies and thought that uh, right. lecturing like or any form of direct instruction was just like you should avoid at all costs. But then <laughs> when he got into the classroom, he's like, oh, but there are moments where I need that. So it yep. definitely is about finding that balance between different types of engagement and pedagogies and whatnot in the classroom. Yeah, I would say I, and I keep harping on it because I feel like it's so important and I see it with adults. I see it with students, but setting up the trust and building that relationship, I think it's key because you're going to find stuff that you want to try and you as a teacher you have to be willing to fail you have to be willing to be risky about things and you can't be risky in front of your students if you don't trust that they're you know not going to accept your your failure as like okay well you know guys this obviously didn't work thanks for bearing through it with me or it could be one of the best lessons you know, teachers are never given that time to almost like field test their their ideas, what they find mm. from from that learning approach. And it's always like, well, this has to be a perfect thing or, you know, I'm, I'm robbing my students. No, like students understand they have bad days. They encounter failure. But building that relationship allows you to flex and, and go with what's going to be best for your students eventually. Yeah, I that definitely resonates with me. I when I first started teaching music in a, a school district, the administrators were saying we don't have the opportunity or luxury to fail, and so they only mm-hmm. wanted us to do things that we quote knew would work, and so we weren't encouraged to experiment with things. And for me, I just it it did not connect with like the way that I am as an educator. I'm constantly iterating on what I'm doing every quarter, every day is something different. I mean, right? You just always have to be doing new stuff. Right. And can I just say, Jared, I love the fact that your background's in music and computer science. And (laughs) it's the way you approach things from what I've seen is like a beautiful balance sometimes. Like I saw it with math and art and like having that those complement each other so well. And I I feel Mm -hmm. like you do that so well with computer science and music. And it's a really neat thing to see. Yeah, it's two things I'm nerdy and passionate about. So. I'm wondering what kind of recommendations you would have for uh, CS educators who are interested in integrating into other subject areas like math or music or whatever. I'm one of these crazy progressives that think we really shouldn't be teaching things separate anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, interdisciplinary uh, studies should be 
I, I feel like that's the way it should work. There's so much lost when we're teaching the quadratic formula in, in high school algebra without any context. Right. Um, uh, except then it's like, well, you know, let's get to the hard word problems. Well, no, the, the word problems are where this stuff lives. This is the use. And I think so many times we teach this in isolation and fearful computer science is going to jump into that same boat mm. of like, you just do computer science. You don't need like the, the programs and the examples and exercises are just going to be these computations of like, well, iterate on this loop and, you know, see how many times you can add four to, to the variable, you know, those kind of non-authentic experiences are not going to stick. And right. so at, at NIMSI, we're, we're looking at how we do this kindergarten through 12th grade progression for our teachers. And one thing I, I've really put my flag in the ground on is K to eight has to be integrated. It has to be where we're teaching these concepts through ways in which the generalist teacher can put them in their classroom. I think it's a it's an issue of access because I hear some schools that are I know some schools. My daughter's school has a standalone STEM teacher or standalone computer science teacher, or integration teacher, or whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. um, but they only see her once every seven days. And this is a fairly affluent school. And so they have the money to have that teacher. But a lot of schools don't have that. And so right. you have your your specials that students go to in elementary school and, and some can go and some can't because of whatever reason. If we're not teaching our generalist teachers to be able to integrate computer science within their own concept or within their own content, we're, we're missing the boat. We're, we're still creating this divide of, you know, the, those that have will continue to have more and those that don't have will continue to be robbed of this potential that could be such an amazing thing. I'm full on board with, with integrating. And so resources, I know New York City has the blueprint mm -hmm. in which um, they they provide a lot of uh, resources there. A lot of them are about integration. The two teachers, that the two educators that we're working with to design and develop the curriculum for our K-8 teachers are actually from Cornell Tech, Kelly Powers and Meg Ray. They are wonderful. They worked a lot in that space. And so we're going to see how we can, you know, take teachers through a three-year progression to, by the end, make them specialist in integration in their own classrooms. So that'll be exciting. I also know that cs for all is putting together a aligned CS in which it will go and look at the current content providers out there and see how they align to the CSTA student standards. And so I think that would be a great resource for a lot of educators trying to find curriculum or, or lessons or anything else to use. Yeah, and I'll make sure to link to those. So you've also had experience teaching in virtual and hybrid learning environments. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for CS educators who are considering those kind of learning environments. I think there's a lot of value, especially those schools that are rural and don't have the funding to have a dedicated computer science teacher. I do worry that a lot of schools will switch to the full online version of that mm -hmm. because not because of how the content's delivered, but how the students are supported. And I've seen that, you know, students are grouped 30 in a classroom. Each one are working on different things and the teachers in and out or, you know, some that that have a great facilitator there are are helping them through. But you're very much reliant on what's going on with, within that curriculum or what within that environment for the students to really seek in. 
And so there's there's a question of quality. And then also on the other side, there's some that the virtual high school out of Maynard, Massachusetts, which I think they've rebranded as just VHS. That's who I taught with. And I, I think they do have a great way of going through because they have a teacher on the other side that is grading and giving feedback and helping students when they have questions. I feel like some curriculums that are just online that don't have that back end of support can potentially rob students, may even make them go the other way and, and not liking the subject whatsoever. So I think it comes back to how those students are being supported in those environments. If it's through, you know, the actual system, or is it through the teacher that's in the room with them? Yeah. And your comment about kids not having a good experience through it is one of the things that I caution with when doing integrated approaches is Mm -hmm. one of the things I recommend is starting with a core group of teachers who are passionate about it rather than everybody all at once doing this because then you might have some (laughs) like bad experiences with the teachers who like don't even know how to use email right yeah and that's where you're making students not like CS because of the 300 other reasons and not just the content right so I completely agree with that the district itself has to sign up for what we're calling CS aligned not to be confused with aligned CS we know there's (laughs) there's confusion there there will be confusion there, but it is what it is. And so there's three components to that program. One is the teacher professional development that I, I've alluded to. The other one is we do vertical teaming with those teachers. And so the district has 12 teachers that are part of this team. And so those receive instruction throughout the year of looking like above them and below them grade wise and to see how those teachers are teaching computer science and also adapting their classroom to make sure, you know, however they explained loops in second grade, we want that to to be a very similar approach that's happening in, in fourth, fifth, or third grade and all the way up. We don't want, you know, this disparate programs or disparate ways of explaining this. And I think we have countless amounts of other research in every other content area that says that's a bad thing. Like you, you don't want to explain something one way and then the next year you flip it around on them. And so that's one component. The, the last component is district planning support in which we're going through and working with the school leaders through the CS for All script rubric to help them create a plan for their district that is going to focus on access, equity, and sustainability long term. But uh, to your earlier point, Jared, I completely agree. Like it, uh, it can't be a mass thing. And I also think it can't be like a a top-down approach. Like you have to have buy-in from these teachers. You have to have your CS champions that are saying, oh yeah, I get how this works. I'll say the K-12 initiative with Cornell Tech is doing some wonderful things in about five or six schools in New York that that they're working to do this integration in, in a very specific way, a meaningful way, and mm-hmm. taking these teachers, content coaching them, providing them a ton of support throughout the year. Uh, what have you learned while working on the CS Aligned? Oh, so we launched the program last year and it was interesting. I I learned so much. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the small answer. The big answer is we originally designed the program to bring in content and curriculum providers to run their own professional development within the, uh, within the NIMSI umbrella. And I should also explain NIMSI works way outside of computer science. Computer science is actually one of the newer content areas that we've really dug into. But 
organizationally, we work with schools across the nation, usually in areas of of high need or at-risk student populations, and providing them constant support for their teachers, student study sessions. And typically, it has been through a college readiness program, which focuses on the AP courses. The thought process there is if we can prepare students along the way to reach those AP courses, they have a better chance of either going to college, being more successful in their careers. And so that's that's the overall approach. And so with that, we we tried to just say, well, let's invite all of these different computer science curriculum providers and let them do professional development under our umbrella, handle the logistics for them and see what happens while supporting these teachers throughout the year. What we found, what I found was different content providers have different ideas of what professional development actually looks like. Right. And so there was pretty big inconsistencies across the board when it came to, you know, how content was delivered, what that looked like, what the teacher experience was. We also had teachers that were not fully aware of what they were really getting into because they were kind of voluntold by their districts uh, to show up. And so there's a lack of teacher buy-in. And then those were really the two biggest things. And so shifting that to this year, we're looking more at a consolidated effort of making sure everyone in the district or everyone that's coming is very aware of what's going on and making sure they're the right people to come and experience the professional development. The other one was we're still working with the partners that we worked with last year, but we're working on a collaborative professional development experience. Mm. So instead of, you know, 12 different programs being offered, we're focusing down to five and that's K to two, three to five, six to eight, and then APCSP and APCSA. Mm-hmm. While next year, I think we're going to, we're going to go ahead and put in exploring computer science as well. So that will be the pathway of the teacher professional development for the teachers that come while doing the vertical teaming throughout the year and the district planning support. Yeah. And one of your, your comments about the PD providers and even just like thinking even broader, like some of the CS platforms or curricula. There are a lot of well-intentioned CS professionals who have kind of stepped into the education field but have never taught a day in their life. So their assumptions (laughs) about what a teacher or a student would need are often not based in reality or or actual classroom experiences. So it's definitely something to watch out for when selecting any kind of platform or PD. I completely agree. And I'm so excited that we're on the working group for CSTA as providing guidance to those professional development providers through the CS educator standards. I think that that's going to be a great resource for for these providers to tap into Uh, because you're right. Like there's a lot of people that are jumping in and it's it is well intentioned. Hopefully, most of them well intentioned, <laughs> and it's not financially uh, appealing for for some. But it, it is, you know, we're the feedback we're getting from districts is as we're having these conversations, they they report, well, we don't know what to pick, we don't know what shiny new toys to buy. We, you know, we have this this X amount of money, and they feel like, and you know, sinking it into these robots or these type of computers or these things are are really what's going to benefit. And it's like, no, you really need to make sure your teachers are, are prepared, they're supported. Because mm-hmm. if not, you're, you're buying toys that are going to go into a closet eventually. Right. So offline, you had mentioned that you really try and encourage or develop access, equity, sustainability, things like that through your PD. Do you have any recommendations for others who are also trying to hit those three areas? Yeah. So I just ran across something this morning. And it is by uh, David Weintraub, is that right? And I will definitely send you the resource. 
but it is a rubric that's built uh, for looking at professional development through those lenses, especially access and equity. And so I think that's a wonderful resource, and I'm hoping that we can incorporate that within what the CSTA working group's doing. I think looking at any of the research that Exploring Computer Science, that program has put out, I know that has been their, their main focus, is, and that's what their whole program was developed around, is making sure all students can be able to have an opportunity to learn computer science. As far as any other resources go, the Ready for Rigor framework with culturally responsive teaching, that's where a lot of, a lot of our lens comes from at NIMSI. So I would say, you know, that those would be a great place to start. And then that will probably lead teachers and other educators on to, to other great things. So from one type A person to another, how do you take care <laughs> of yourself and stave off burnout? Oh, my gosh, that I saw that question and I was like, oh, I, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> but I've been trying to do better. One thing that I do is I time block really well now my mm. scheduling. And I've started trying to take that over to my personal life. And so, like I said, I'm a grad student right now. And so I will time block in my my night, especially like when I have when I have my kids, I, I time block for them. So, you know, right. I pick them up from school and then they go to bed at eight. And so that is chunked off in my personal calendar as, you know, that's what I'm doing. And then maybe from eight to 10, I'll time block off uh, schoolwork. But then I never really thought about applying that to personal life mm. before. I think I talked to someone a month or two months ago, and that's what they were doing. And I was like, oh, OK, this is nice, because what I've realized and I, you can probably uh, sympathize with me on this is if I don't have it written down, it stays in my head and it creates this anxiety yeah panic, you know, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I can write it down, if I can time block it off, even 30 minutes on my calendar to send an email that I know I have to send, it makes me, allows me to, to not have to worry about it. Yep. And so I say setting up those practices there. And then as hard as it is, like just disconnecting from work. And mm-hmm. so like I'll purposely leave my phone in another room at times, like when I have the girls or, or other times just so I'm not checking work email, so I'm not trying to respond to something or, or have my mind cluttered. Yep. Um, and I think another thing, and this could be age, um, <laughs> so just getting older, but like saying no sometimes. Yeah. Like I feel like early in my career, I was, yes, I'll do it. Oh yeah, of course, I'm, I wanna jump in here, I wanna help. And even though it's well-intentioned, all of us only have so much energy. And so, you know, by saying yes to everything, you're really diluting everything. And so it's finding those places in which I feel like I can make the most impact and saying yes to that and reserving those yeses for that time. And knowing that, you know, everybody's human and, and we all have to have time to disconnect. I do want to know, though, your response to that question. So I'm always looking for other ways. Ooh, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a ton <laughs> that could be unpacked there. I, I definitely yeah. agree with like finding time to disconnect. It's been difficult for me for the last couple of months because I have been working on weekends and working later into the evenings because of just so many projects going on. So right. learning to say no to some of those projects would have probably been helpful. <laughs> mm-hmm. When I initially got counseling like well over a decade ago, one of the things that she recommended right. was like, planning out your day in like 10 minute chunks and making that flexible and knowing like, well, things are going to are changing. And so I had to force in, okay, I'm going to work out from this time to this time. And like, nothing's going to get in the way of that, um, ideally. So 
I, that has been a big thing for me. Also, the getting things done idea of just like writing it down, putting it into your action and filing it for here's when I'm going to address that thing. So I don't have to keep yeah. thinking about that. That definitely helps with the anxiety. I uh, I also wonder, I saw a tool pop up at some point, but it, it was a circular calendar. And I'm, I'm interested in how that can can help because I sometimes I, I lose long-term sight for short-term, like you said, with all projects that pop up. And, mm-hmm. and I wonder if looking at a circular calendar and having like that blocked off in a way of, okay, I can, you know, push this project out to this point because that seems like a more empty space on this calendar than keeping it, you know, everything just within the month, the next month. And so mm-hmm. I don't know, that's just an idea. Could you elaborate on like visually what does the circular calendar look like? I have like multiple things going in my brain. I will I'll send you a link to this too, but it from what it looked like, it was blocked in chunks of like so there's the circle, like inner circle was chunked in um I feel like seasons, so like the quarters of the year. Okay. And then the the outer chunk was like in months. And so there wasn't a lot of detail provided. It was really, it looked like it was color coded in a way of like, okay, you know, this happens on this month, every single, you know, whatever it is, every single month. And, or maybe like, I know I'm going to be traveling at these points. And so I can put that on there just as a, I feel like what it was trying to do is give like a holistic view of your year. Mm. And for us, type a anxiety ridden people like it it almost provides more space to say oh okay like i have a year like well none of us are guaranteed time but like hopefully we have a year of like this is the progression of life and and maybe everything doesn't have to be done within the next week yeah yeah like so Um, i'm curious what do you wish there was more research on in cs education so a topic that's really interesting for me and what I probably am going to dig into for my research is going to be the identity that's formed with these teachers, especially those that are taken out of their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. So this teacher identity that was formed as becoming a math teacher or becoming a science teacher, how does adding in this teacher that, that like now you're a computer science teacher, like how, what does that look like versus are you still a math teacher? Do you use both? Like when you first initially talk to someone, how does that look? Professionally, with the NIMSY CS Aligned program, we're digging into, you know, how how does this systemic change happen within a K-12 school district by offering, you know, these components or, or what does that look like? And I think that's kind of where I, I wish a lot of focus would start going into is the systemic changes and how you can get the basically the biggest bang for your buck, like going into a school district and, and, and tackling these issues of equity and access. And also, you know, putting it out there that, you know, everybody is, is going to quote money and time, like money and time are issues and everybody faces those. Yep. So let's like put those on the table, but wipe them to the side. Let's, let's figure out other ways that we can be addressing these issues, ignoring the fact that money and time are, are always issues. And so that's where I, I would be really interested. Oh, and one other, this would be like a personal venture into like medicine slash computer science slash neurology or everything else. Someone told me one time about uh, some upcoming research that like learning computer science actually changes the way your brain functions and works and mm. in, in seeing problems and seeing things. And so I'd be really interested in that, which I just watched a TED talk on neuroplasticity and like how you, how your brain can rewire itself. 
which I find all of that so fascinating. So that would be a personal research project, I think. Yeah, I have a like a, a bit of a fascination with neuroscience and whatnot. And yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Just we don't really fully understand how we learn. We just know that mm. like when you do <laughs> something over and over, then you like uh, develop myelin and like it helps with like being able to fire the correct neurons at the correct time yeah. and like, things like that. But we still don't really understand how we actually learn. Yeah, I think. And like all of that leads me to wonder about, and it was the the TED talk that I watched with this neuroplasticity, that there was a woman where she couldn't gain her balance. And so mm. part of it was like her, her balance center was, was off. And so basically retrained her brain through this tongue sensor that every time she was balanced, she would, she'd be able to like keep that. And it was, it was creating these new connections within her brain. I wonder if like computer science or, or doing that kind of thing could help those with anxiety or depression or other, you know, uh, mental illnesses to to rewire those pieces of your brain that that need to. So, yeah, certainly. And that kind of tags on to what Katie Henry mentioned in her interview is like CS for healing. And what is the potential for that? Mm, yeah, that would be amazing. Where might people go to connect with you and the organizations you work with? Probably the easiest is going to be through Nimsy, which um, I guess you'll link my email in and any other contact information. But also CSTA is a wonderful organization to be a part of and helps things that we're doing. CS for All has, has their website now, and which is really blossoming and, and creating different places. And I want to start, as I'm doing more research, put it out there. I enjoy cooking. So if you want to take a cooking class with me, come to Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll cook. <laughs> what do you like to cook? So I took a sushi class, which was so interesting, huh. a couple months ago. And so I like that. But I really and truly, I like just being adventurous. I think how how different flavors can, can meld together and, and yeah. make new things is great. I recently, with my daughters, uh, I got a pasta maker. And so we made noodles fresh yeah. uh, for some spaghetti. And that was that was super neat. I, I'd never done anything like that. They loved it. It was a massive mess, <laughs> yeah. but still, it was super fun. So It's worth it, though. Oh, yes, definitely. And that concludes this week's episode of the CSK8 podcast. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Justin. I certainly enjoyed interviewing him. Friendly reminder, you can find all of these show notes by clicking on the link in the description or visiting jaredoleary.com, where you will find lots of links to videos and books and other resources that Justin mentioned throughout this episode. If you haven't done so already, please consider giving a review to this podcast. It helps other people find it or simply share it with somebody that you know who might be interested in hearing interviews like this or the episodes where I unpack scholarship, which occurred the previous week and will occur next week. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you all have a wonderful week and I look forward to speaking to you again in next week's episode.